0: so you are running for the governor of the state of rhode island now the primaries coming up here in September, September 13th, you know, why is it that you decided to transition away from your job as a medical doctor and decide to run for the governor of your state?
1: Yeah, no, thank you for the question. You know, I um, prior to this, I was primarily working at the intersection of clinical operations and technology. So I wasn't currently practicing. Um, My most recent work was in contact tracing and helping deploy a new vaccination system while on the advocacy front serving on the state's equity council and trying to ensure that our COVID-19 response was equitable in terms of testing access, vaccination access and and other um, areas of need. Now, why did I decide to run for governor? This is the second time I'm running. Uh, The first time I ran was in 2018, at least in that cycle. And I ran as an independent then, um, and and largely that my decision to run as an independent was because we have a significant history of corruption in the state of Rhode Island. And that corruption um, has uh, manifested within the Democratic Party as well. You know, I grew up in Central Falls. Uh, Central Falls is, uh, you know, in a, the Bronx of Rhode Island, right? It's the square mile city, uh, the city that everybody loves to use as a talking point when they talk about poor education outcomes. And it's always used in this kind of negative light. And what was interesting about growing up in this Gromont City is you had the small town feel, the connection between community members, but you still struggled, Uh, in, in that, you know, there were inequitable systems. Uh, our public education system was not adequately resourced, though we had great teachers that were trying to do their best. Um, you know, we had uh, certainly continue to have today, you know, a, a need for affordable housing. And my mother was a single mother trying to raise five kids with not enough time in the day to spend time with us and then to also pay the bills and pay for food. So just kind of going through that journey, that personal journey through Central Falls, and then continuing to hear people talk about us in ways in which we've become this kind of stereotype. You know, For me, it was always a question as to like, why? Like, why is the system designed in this way? You know, why is my father, who's been struggling with addiction, not able to get the services and help that he needs to get out of that addiction? You know, why are we seeing that even though we're a small community, even though my coach was a police officer, I'm still seeing police officers stop in the street and pick fights with kids. Why were all these things happening? And I didn't have the answers, but what I had was a big chip on the shoulder. And at the age of 17, while I was about to, you know, decide to drop out, a teacher realized that, uh, you know, he could help me. And he decided to help me figure out how to translate that chip into the rhetoric and the words to push back against the system. And it was really my last year of high school that I became, I would say, um, much more of a philosopher. Uh, I started to really gravitate towards new ideas. And I majored in philosophy at Rhode Island College. I learned about ideas in the context of history. And I really learned that that statement that there's nothing new under the sun is true. you know, these struggles, are cyclical. Every civilization has faced its own version of indentured servitude, we call it student debt today. you know. And yet, as though we face these things uh, as, a, as a species, it seems like we never really learn. You know, We never really learn what it means to create sustainable systems that embody human rights, like healthcare as a human right, housing as a human right. And by the time I finished medical school, I looked back at all of the years I had dedicated to college education and all of the fights that I had had as a medical graduate student, as chair of the honor board, as someone who was developing health policy through the American Medical Association. And I realized that even within this altruistic profession, I was constantly butting heads against authority figures that did not want things to change and also did not understand that this for-profit healthcare system was not designed for everyone. It was designed for the elite and it has not changed uh, since then. And once I, I reached I would say this conclusion, which was really amalgamation of many different ideas and experiences in my life, I decided that I needed to fill a knowledge gap before I could actually act to effect systematic changes, and that knowledge gap was business and economics. Um, so one thing is assessing, or I would say judging a problem, you know, identifying it, judging it, uh, but another thing is understanding it to the to the extent that you can actually work to develop solutions. And so I worked in the industry for. For several years, building medical devices, health information technology solutions, deploying those across hospital systems, meeting the pandemic head-on, as they say, by bringing those skill sets into the, the the response efforts, and you know, the first time I ran, I I, I wanted things to change, and I certainly had knowledge. I don't think that I really understood what the fight was in its entirety. I, I knew that policy and these political figures would catalyze change. And I knew that there was corruption that I was pushing back against. But I didn't understand the extent of how these institutions were like, being kept as they are, not solely by politicians but also by corporations right that <laughs> access subsidies and that benefit from certain politicians being in office and by a political base that is relatively small compared to the number of people that are completely disenfranchised from the political process altogether so I it took a race as an independent to to really stand outside completely of everything and to see it for what it was and once COVID hit and we you know and I saw that uh in the worst case scenario, the world was not prepared for what we're currently facing today. I just decided that rather than than run as an independent again, despite the why of why I did that, um, that I would face Goliath head on. And in Rhode Island, Goliath is a very conservative Democratic Party with Mm -hmm. dinosaurs that do not want to leave office, uh, but instead just want to build a legacy because some for some reason or other having your name on a cement block on the ground is more important than making sure that kids have free lunches. I mean it seems like
0: you're you're painting a picture of kind of like a a, a bleak entrenchment of power in the states. And the question always is like how do you how do you break through that? But before we even get to how you break through it, let me just ask you I guess just a um, the first probably most important question that i can ask as an outsider as someone who doesn't live in your state i'm not sure what the what the number one issue facing people of rhode island is i know that as i've talked to people from different you know areas of the country they have different issues affecting states like wisconsin and utah texas florida so on and so forth what is the number one issue facing rhode island and
1: if you were elected how would you address it yeah what is the number one issue facing the world i mean it's healthcare. $8 trillion of expenditures globally, the United States, we take up about $4 trillion of those dollars. Uh, we look at for-profit healthcare, and we see these dominant players. One of them is actually headquartered here in Rhode Island. It's called CBS. One of my opponents came out of CBS. One of the biggest contributors to the high cost of healthcare that we have, and this whole minute clinic stuff is this narrative built out to try to you know, divert our attention to the fact that they are, in fact, contributors to the high cost of, of medicines. Now, why does that matter? because we're still facing COVID-19, ba 5 there'll be another variant. And at some point these variants are going to start to actually get strong enough. And when we have enough data, we may find that we have different strands. We have monkeypox. We had one case globally, and you know, eight weeks later, 20,000 cases. And there's absolutely, it seems to be completely ignored right now. I don't know if because it's because it's midterm elections, but it's completely ignored. We're not mobilizing around vaccination. We're not even thinking about what it means that we're starting to see pediatric cases, right? So healthcare, the most expensive thing at this point, the most out of uh, disorganized responses around our our healthcare response for COVID-19 and now kind of indifferent to monkeypox nationally. And we have to look back at the past 30 years and and we have to recognize that public health has been dismantled in this country. And what, what I mean by dismantled, I mean that free clinics, there are less of them. You have free Wallace clinics, which essentially is private practitioners that are bringing people in pro bono. That's not sustainable. Uh, we have, um you know when you look at our public funding of healthcare institutions, uh, we we're we're using private entities to manage the disbursement of those funds and and you know, and, and so like even though it looks like it's publicly funded programs, we have for-profit companies that are in there siphoning off capital. Uh, so healthcare has been dismantled. We have, less infrastructure than we've had before no one is moving to build that infrastructure back up and we continue to have chronic diseases in this very lucrative country of the us that are skyrocketing like diabetes high blood pressure and with long covid what we're starting to find is some of those chronic diseases are setting in earlier so we have a massive burden right when i say burden i mean like the demand for healthcare on a system that is unable to 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 manage the weight of that demand yeah Governors had an opportunity to show they can do this. And I don't think there was a governor in the United States of America that was prepared to. And before in 2018, they said, why would you run if you're a medical doctor? And I said, we need community health infrastructure to build out. Now, at that time, I was saying it to set us on a path for like having state-based single payer systems, because if you want control, cost control, you need to do a couple of things. You need to have clinics that people can walk to, to keep them out of the expensive ERs. And you need to control the cost of drugs, which means as a state, negotiate the prices, pass the uh-huh. rebates on to consumers to make sure that they can get those savings. But then a pandemic happened and everything I said still mattered, but it was in the context of a national, you know, a global emergency. People are still asking for some reason why would doctors and scientists and and nurses and pharmacists run. I just can't believe that people are still asking that question. Does 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 being a a scientist, a healthcare professional, you know, in any way prepare you to manage a multi-billion dollar budget? Maybe not. But what governor in the state of Rhode Island at least I can say that has come with that type of experience of managing billion dollar budgets not make catastrophic decisions? that are ultimately have, have have come out of cronyism, right? Like giving big tax breaks to big developers. A soccer stadium is the biggest debate we have now, but before it was a virtual reality company that they called 38 Studios. Yeah. So every time we have business people in government, they treat it like a business and the consumer always loses, right? We always lose. You know, I, I it's my belief that now, given that healthcare is at the forefront, given that we need to build a lot in order to ensure that we have a sustainable help not only healthcare system but economy since healthcare is at the center of it you know it's also about having the lens of equity that being a uh, at least for me being a a medical doctor that came out of a a poor background you know this experience for me is is about like looking at these people that are walking into the ER and seeing everything behind them what is the housing situation that contributed to their current condition what is the the nutritional right uh, situation that led them to to have early onset you know blood, heart disease now what is what is the transportation you know issues or, or lack of resources that led you know the, the the individual to you know find themselves in a situation where they were unable to work and are homeless now on the street sixteen times more likely to be arrested by police officers I'm throwing a lot out there because ultimately what I'm saying here in summary is these are the social determinants of health right. Everybody's health is a is 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 a, a it's a manifestation of the social conditions that we all live in. And who's going to fight for those things to change? And I, I honestly don't see anybody in this race doing that. Uh, and and I would would I not run if I did? I I believe I would. I really I really believe that if if someone had come forth with the courage to fight for these things. And to do it in the real way, not just talking about it, but being on the ground with people, you know, then I would have taken a step back. But no one's doing that. So,
0: hey, that's a fair answer. I mean, there are, there is, it does seemingly be a, a lack of leadership uh, at the executive levels in each one of these states right now, as, especially as we're seeing so many different things happening around the country, inflation, housing prices, you know, just corporations taking over the uh, the economy in several different ways. So it does seem that there is a a chasm. You know, of you know, just a void of lack of leadership. So, I appreciate your stance on that. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to have some more questions with our candidate. Make sure you stay tuned.
2: Betty's Divine is a locally owned boutique on the magnificent hip strip in downtown Missoula, Montana, that has been a fixture in the Mountain West since 2005. We have a fondness for vintage inspired clothing, shoes, and accessories for humans, as well as the real deal found in our vintage department, Divine Trash. Betty's Divine presents a snapshot of Northwest styles with an emphasis on street, skate, surf, and rock and roll culture, as well as Americana classics. Alongside a radical selection of clothing, Betty's Divine offers a damn fine array of shoes, jewelry, records, and accessories to satisfy any taste, whatever your age or vibe. You can count on us to prioritize financial, social, and environmental responsibility without sacrificing the look. Visitors enjoy a lovely atmosphere, dreamy tunes, and the best customer service in the West. And you can shop us online at BettysDivine.com. Hey, Indie Thought listeners. Has this past year helped you rediscover your creative and crafty side? well then you're going to love our sponsor for today's episode bathing beauties beads is a full-service bead shop in the heart of downtown missoula whether it's seed beads semi-precious stones vintage beads or just materials to make a project they have something for every person and every price range not from missoula don't worry they have an extensive online store and they will ship directly to you whether you're a beginner or a pro they'll welcome you and help you make your next project a reality you can find them online at Bathing Beauties Beads on Instagram and Facebook or at bathingbeautiesbeads.com. And don't forget to use offer code independentthought at checkout to save 15% on your order.
0: Welcome back from the break everyone. Thank you for sticking with us through this episode of Independent Thought. So, We are going to transition next to some of the criticisms that you felt like you have faced while you've been on this campaign trail. One of the things you had mentioned to me, you know, prior to the episode was that some people have expressed to you and you're not going to name names here, obviously, uh, that you might not have a chance in this race because you don't have a bunch of wealthy people like funding your campaign. Uh, Tell me, what is it about that particular, I guess, idea that bothers you the most when it comes to just how politics are treated in general
1: yeah no it's um it's interesting you know and i will say i just want to reference back on the website governor 2022.com there's a documentary we released it's it's called catalyst and there's um, an experience that is shared there with a political operative in rhode island who threatened me the last cycle and one of the races that he referenced races that he had supported prior to the threat, he was attempting to make the case that um, they pretty much took a, a, a doctor down in a way, right? Like metaphorically speaking per se, or you know, made, made him lose the race. And it was a race between a physician and Patrick Kennedy at the time. Now party dynamics aside, the point of of, of his reference uh, in terms of the work that he had done with others as an operative was was mostly to say, we had someone with a, a lot of wealth Against someone with a lot of experience and wealth won, and then the threat came after. So I'd encourage everyone to check the documentary out. But where I'm at, just like a real answer here straight up, is everybody says they want change, like politics in America, electoral politics, working families party, you know, progressive um various progressive networks and cooperatives, d- different gangs. everybody says they want change. and 501 C4s in Rhode Island have been staying out of the governor's race because strategically they're going for the wins at the local level. Right. That that's the dynamic. So when I get feedback, and and I appreciate all the feedback, you know, I, I take it for what it is, uh, you know, and I'm hearing people say, you know, you you're showing that you're doing the work, you're showing that you have the vision, the courage. And especially in, in, in certain areas, one of the most important areas, healthcare, the experience, but, and then the but, right? And and the but is like, but the funding. And so viability and funding become like these synonymous like terms and politics. And my question is to myself after I hear these conversations, at some point you kind of get exhausted and 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 dragging it out, but it's like, so we're supposed to sell out. So So we're supposed to, take $1,000, because that's the limit in Rhode Island, $1,000 from as many wealthy people as we can and promise things that we have no right promising, and then work the next four years to do the minimal amount of good, but then keep all these promises to these wealthy developers, these real estate developers, these soccer stadium developers, in the past in Rhode Island, these these virtual reality developers, or, or the next company to bid for a casino. If you think about the Kachir administration, in Rhode Island, like take all this money and somehow we're supposed to do the right thing. And then you speak to political operatives and they say, well, campaigning's one thing, governing's another. I actually heard that at a at a recent endorsement and it was a, it was a it was a union endorsement. And someone asked the question, you know, and it was it was just interesting to me that that person was trying to frame the campaign as being an indication of leadership and then created an argument that the campaign, the indicator for leadership was fundraising. How do we fight for working families in this country? How do we fight for the working and the working poor? The working poor, the people who are always behind on the bills. No. Most states that have any more than $20,000 of debt, you can pretty much say that they're cash poor. So how do we fight for them and then do so After taking thousands of dollars from wealthy donors that have interest that are not change. Let's be clear, like people that are making money in this economic state. I'm not talking about capitalism. I'm saying that even if you accept the premise of capitalism as it stands today, why would people that are profiting from the systems today want any form of change? And then the politicians that want this office as a stepping stone, why would they sacrifice? the next step and that is also the problem with politicians it's not just the money they take it's that it's the treatment of elected offices as vocations i can respect that there are government roles that are in fact vocations the people that are never they never receive enough thank yous the people that keep the state up the same people in the state of rhode island that are being the same people that a proportion of them are being denied medicaid access to, to, to abortion services, through the Medicaid program, right? Like this is Rhode Island. This is the interesting part of it, that the people that should be thanked, the people that are keeping government afloat, the people that should get more are getting less, and then the elected officials are using these offices to get more, and the people that are propping them up are getting more. So viability and funding is the problem with politics, and I'm not saying that it's going to change. I'm not I'm in any way delusional to think that this interview is going to completely change the world. But what yeah. I do know, what I do know is that. If you have the more sophisticated ideas, if your presentation embodies the courage, the punch and the vision necessary, at some point, these lobbies are going to break. At some point. And I'm not saying that I'm the change agent but I will catalyze as much as I can. And this is not a a campaign of messaging. It is a five way split race. 32% of voters were undecided. Change is never predictable. Like every revolutionary in history, and I won't even talk about their ideologies because independent of their ideologies, every revolutionary in history did not expect to win. (laughs) They did not expect for the world to change. And that's part of the problem. So we have all of these fights, we march in the streets, we call for action, but what is the theory of change? Like if the wall does fall down, if the gates tumble, like do we have a plan? And unfortunately in history, what you see is many of the revolutionaries, let's bring up the Cape Verdean islands, in Cabral, right, like very, we have a large Cape Verdean population here in Rhode Island, like what happened after? There were a lot of uh, Cape Verdeans that were unprepared for the needs that they would have basic food needs and that led to a time in which they had to rely on other governments for support and it delayed their path towards a democracy so we do need things to change radically but we need to have a theory of change in place and in the state of rhode island given our size we have an opportunity to show a model for the rest of the country of a state based single payer system within the next 10 years, starting with a completely free community health system that we can fund the infrastructure for through the American Rescue Plan Act. Dollars right that are coming 1.1 1.1 billion for the state of Rhode Island, we have an opportunity in the state of Rhode Island. To innovate and expand what we're doing with the blue economy and the green economy right so expanding wind, also doing solar rooftops. And, And why is it important for the state of Rhode Island to show that more than anyone else, because we have this size we have the technologies we have the innovators in place we have the ocean right next to us right we we can show the rest of the country what it means to do that starting with every single city and town hall and capital building being run by solar or some other form of alternative energy outside of any type of like biofuel because we know that when we look at these alternative alternative energies that are in the kind of biofuel you know area they're still being run by these hedge funds that are connected to fossil fuel companies. So we got we to gotta see where the money's coming from. We, we know that if it's coming from the same place, nothing changes. So we have to start to design things from the ground up. And Rhode Island is a path to do that. So I'm not just fighting for a message here. I'm fighting because we have the money. We have the movement. And I think at a, this time in history is we have the, the absolute need to do something before everything collapses and the people in power who have no plan in place fail us again.
0: Hey, you know, that's beautifully said. And, you know, just as like a reminder, uh, when is the primary and where can people find you at, you know, online if they want to learn more about you and your campaign?
1: Yeah. So the primary is September 13th uh, of, of this year. It's a it's a big primary. Between now and then, there's a series of forums. Um, and debates, we're trying our best to make sure we're on the televised debates. I know last election cycle, they, uh, you know, they they kept they kept me off. Uh, this time, hopefully that that changes. On that debate stage, that, that's where we win. Uh, and so between now and then, as much as we can fundraise, every dollar that someone donates, literally, if it's, just, if it's a dollar, it's gonna count. Uh, if you want to learn more about the campaign, you can go to governor2022.com. Let's speak it into existence. On the website, you'll see uh the you know endorsements. You'll also see the documentary link. Uh, that documentary is really important, uh, because it actually brings together over twenty-five activists and organizers throughout the state who have been pushing for social, economic, and racial justice for decades. And they tell their stories, they talk about their lived experience, and they also talk about the corruption that they've experienced in the state of Rhode Island. And I think that is the great reveal here, right? We are in a time where we, we have to really start to ask the question, is it a set of values that we are collectively fighting for, or is it the framework of a party? Like, yes, I'm in the Democratic primary fighting for what I believe can be the heart of the Democratic Party, but we can't continue to accept the indifference of what we've experienced over the last, at least in my lifetime, 37 years.
0: Absolutely. For those of you who are interested, those links will be in the episode description. wanna go ahead and again, thank our candidate, for coming on to the show today, thank you so much. Uh, for those who are listening in the state of Rhode Island, go check out his platform. Like you know, just just to go do that right now. What are you waiting for? So, thank you again for coming on the show. We will see everyone in the next episode. Take care. Thank you.